Hi, I'm Mark Priestley. After a life spent in the elite environment of the Formula One pit lane learning how to win, this podcast aims to bring that elusive, high-performance culture into your daily lives. In this week's episode, we're going to be looking at what measures we use to decide if somebody or a company or a team are successful. We're going to look at the use of technology in Formula One and the wider world, and we're going to cover the mess that the FIA have made of the post-Abu Dhabi investigation. Welcome to another Pit Lane Life Lessons. Talk about how Formula One teams are so successful. Tiny things. You only find those tiny things when you look for them. Of course, there's only one winner in every Grand Prix, so for everybody else, you haven't won. So it could be deemed that's, that's a failure. Hello everybody and welcome back to a brand new episode of the Pit Lane Life Lessons podcast. I really appreciate, as ever, you all joining. And if you're new around here, well then I appreciate you just as much. Thank you for coming along. I hope you enjoy what you hear. There is a whole back catalogue. I'm going to say a whole back catalogue. There is a previous season of 10 episodes together with the first two that have already gone in this season that you can go back and peruse at your leisure. I hope you enjoy them. And I would really love it if you could share them around. I appreciate all of you that have shared episodes this week or have let me know that you're enjoying them whether you have shared them with your friends whether you have uh, people tell me how they've listened to them where they've listened to them all of those interactions are hugely appreciated I really mean that Um, if you're going to share the podcast please do so on social media but tag me in because then I can help to reshare your post as well and if you want to retweet any of my posts promoting the podcast again I would really love it if you could do that because ultimately it will mean that more people get to to listen to it and that's the ultimate goal here now uh, a quick apology this week before I get going you are almost certainly going to hear some wind noise in the background and that is because I'm recording this on Sunday afternoon in my house which is undergoing massive renovation right now and has no windows and you may have seen on the news that we are just in the tail end of storm Eunice here in the UK uh, which was um, a pretty powerful storm coming through and it's still very windy outside with no windows I'm afraid it's inevitable that you're going to hear some blustery noise going on Uh, I have tried to minimize it as best I can but you will hear it so apologies for that um Now, I've got a huge amount uh, to get through this week. It feels like a lot has happened both in my life, just generally over the past seven days that I want to talk about, but also in the world of Formula One, too. So I'm going to try and cover as much as I can in as much depth as I can. And that means starting way back last Monday. So the day that this last week's podcast was being released, I was on a plane flying to Dublin, to Ireland, to go and talk to the leadership team of one of the biggest companies in the world that you have probably never heard of. This is an enormous global commercial real estate company. Uh, The reason you'll have never heard of them in the most part is because they're a commercial real estate company. So they're not dealing with consumer level products. They're not talking about end users like you and I. They are talking about their clients being huge corporations around the world who need office space or headquarters space, that kind of thing. They build them, they acquire them, they manage them. That's the business they're in. But it's huge. They have revenues of over $12 billion. They have thousands and thousands and thousands of employees operating all over the world. That is a big company. You might also look at those numbers and say that's a very successful company, right? 12 billion plus dollars in revenues. That's huge. And it's got to be successful. 
And yet I was there to talk to the very senior leadership team for an afternoon about how they can become successful. Because they were looking at this and thinking that whilst clearly there are some successful elements to what they do, those numbers, if you're a shareholder in that company, those numbers are successful. They're big, big numbers. And yet they look at what they do and they see room for enormous improvement. They see scope to, first of all, take those numbers up to plus $20 billion. That's how much room for improvement they suspect there is within their own organisation. But they also want to start measuring themselves in a very different way. They have got people within their organisation who are not particularly happy. They have a high turnover of staff. They have a culture which doesn't necessarily lend itself to a high performing team. And it got me thinking throughout this whole afternoon session that I had with these people about how they can improve on all of these little details to become much more successful in how we think about success. It got me thinking about how we measure success. Because, of course, everybody has their own version of that, don't they? But there's a real growing movement across the world, in my mind, certainly in the in the younger generation, but it's certainly not restricted to the younger generation, of judging success based solely on those numbers or metrics like that. How much money does a person have in their bank account? What kind of car do they drive and what is that car worth? How big is their house? How many bedrooms does it have? How much did it sell for last time it was on the market? How many followers does a person have on Instagram? These are the kind of metrics that the younger generation today are almost entirely judging success upon. Now that's, first of all, clearly not healthy. And secondly, it's no measure of success at all. It does not tell you the bigger picture of any of those things. Now, I'm going to recite a sentence about me in a moment, and you'd be forgiven for your first reaction to that sentence being, what an arrogant prick, <laughs> and then switching off. I would urge you don't switch off because I'm going to go and clarify what I'm about to say. But here's the sentence. I am one of the most successful people you will ever meet or hear from. There you go. How about that? <laughs> now, if you haven't ripped your headphones off and stamped on them and stormed out and unfollowed me, <laughs> let me talk about what I mean here. Because, look, what I'm talking about here is that I genuinely, and this is not, I'm not saying this for effect, believe me, this is genuine. I honestly, from the bottom of my heart, believe you will struggle to find a more successful person than me. And what I mean by that, because I don't have millions in the bank, I don't drive a flashy car and I don't live in a mansion. I don't have a million followers on Instagram. And yet I see myself as hugely successful. And I'm not measuring that success based on the fact that, you know, I've had a successful career in Formula One. I'm not basing it on the fact that I now present a huge TV show. Those things are great and I'm enjoying doing them. The sole metric that I measure my own success upon is the fact that I am so happy in life. I've been happy in life for quite a long period of time now. I've found happiness. 
And for me, there is no bigger or better or more realistic measure of success than that. Because if I had the million followers or the million pounds in the bank and yet was really unhappy, I don't see that as a successful person. That's not me being successful in life. That's not me winning. Of course, if I have the million followers and I start posting pictures of my big fancy house and my big flashy car on Instagram, if you see that, you're of course going to think I am a hugely successful person. But what lies behind all of that could be someone who's utterly miserable. And yet I'm not. I'm so far from being miserable. I've got a beautiful family that I love. I have got a lovely house. You know, I live in a beautiful part of the world. But the point is, I enjoy it. I enjoy living here. I live in the countryside and I get out and I explore it. And I appreciate every moment of doing so. I look around when I go for dog walks at the trees and the birds and the sky and the landscapes and I drink it all in. I appreciate every single bit of it. And it makes me happy. Now, those things are a genuine, pure measure of success. And I don't want this to sound in any way corny. Because, of course, if you're a company, you are going to be measured, if, not, if by nothing else than your shareholders, by your top line. Bottom line. <laughs> the numbers, of course, do have to stack up to be successful when you have set a target of hitting a certain number in terms of profits. That's just business. But I'm talking about being successful in life as a human being. Surely the only real measure of that is whether you can get to the end of your life if you're lying on your deathbed on the final day when you've run out of time, there's no more time. Will you look back in that moment and will you think you've had a successful life because you've had a happy one? Have you done the things you'd love to experience? Have you enjoyed them? Have you shared the big moments with the people that you love? Have you had a smile on your face for a large part of your life? Have you dealt with challenges in the best way you possibly could and still came out the other side feeling happy? I felt happy for quite a few years. I mean, genuinely happy. I've had happy moments. We all have happy moments. But deep down, intrinsically, I know I am happy. And that's been the case for a quite a few years now. I also know that I will be happy for my foreseeable future. And that's despite whatever comes my way. Challenges, uh, you know, things that I have to overcome. Really difficult things that I might have to overcome. Of course, they'll come along at some point. But I know that I'm so deeply, intrinsically happy that I will find a way to navigate those challenges and come out the other side still feeling happy. I have that power within me and it's that that makes me the most successful person you will ever hear from. Now when I speak to this huge company in Ireland on Monday about what makes them successful, their new measures of success that we all agreed upon during the afternoon session weren't just the numbers. Because ultimately what we decided upon was if they come up with a good set of values that they want to live by, that they want to operate by. And those values are pure and true to them as an organisation. And if they follow those values and get the entire organisation to follow those values as well, being led by example from the very top, they will find that the people in the organisation are happier 
They will find that there is a culture that enables people to operate closer to their best. And with all of those things, with a happy workforce, with a content workforce, with a workforce that's operating at a level of well-being that can only be dreamed about right now because of the culture of unrest and distrust that they currently have. Not everywhere, but in certain pockets of this big organisation. If they can eradicate that and turn that into a culture of positivity, of happiness, of well-being, well, those numbers ultimately will look after themselves. Focusing on the things that genuinely we should be measuring success by actually inadvertently will end up delivering the numbers that externally people tend to measure success by themselves. We need to shift the focus from those external measures, those external metrics, and look after the intrinsic metrics that make us happy, that make us successful. Happy people tend to operate at a higher level. They tend to generate more of the traditional forms of success. They tend to do more. They tend to influence people around them in a much better, more positive way. And all of those things tend to lead to the external metrics that we tend to judge success by looking after themselves. So that was my first point that I thought was really interesting that I'd gone to this enormous company that so many people would have judged in almost any metric as being hugely successful. And yet the very people at the top of that company didn't necessarily see it that way. They saw there being a long way to go before they got to success. And I think if we're honest and we start to look at ourselves, I think a lot of us can probably look at ourselves in the same way. We may be portraying an image of a successful person who only posts the really happy moments, the big moments, the fancy holidays, the big dinners out. And yet they're trying to portray an image of happiness and success when deep down inside, are they really that happy? I know that I really am that happy. And, you know, that is my measure of success. And I'm not trying to be arrogant about this. I promise you I'm not showing off here. I'm trying to just talk about the difference, what the different ways we measure success and how I think there is a big twist in the world in how we do that and perhaps we should start thinking about addressing that right let's move on to the next page in my diary because this is in, intrinsically linked to this in fact i should have mentioned this earlier because the next day i had a call on a similar level but i had a call with the ceo of one of the uk's biggest estate agents and they are also a hugely successful company and so just as a side note side note let me just tell you what he said because in their call in the call that i had with them again talking about the things that they could do to improve what they currently how they currently exist they actually already measure their success levels not by the numbers they measure their success levels by the retention of staff. They have a happiness metric within the organisation. They have a happiness team that gauges that happiness metric on a six monthly basis. I thought that was a fascinating way to look at it. They look at client repeat business as a measure of success. Not just client business, but client repeat business. Did the client want to come back and do business with them again? 
Those are their three main metrics of measuring success within their company. Colleague happiness, colleague retention, as in do those people stay within the company for a long period of time because they're happy and client repeat business. Now I wonder if we as individuals started to measure our own lives along those kind of basis, along that kind of basis. Would we have a different picture of what success looked like to us? Do friends stay with us for a long period of time? Do they keep coming back for more? And are they happy? Are the people around you taking happiness from the time that they are with you? Really important measures of success. Uh, right, my next point. Uh, the next day, I had a call. Uh, I think we're up to about, where are we, Wednesday now. I had a call with one of the execs at the network that I work with. Uh, just a long call, catch-up call, talking about uh, ideas for the future, about what's going well, what's going not so well. And uh, this is not about this particular person I was talking to, but this is a more general comment. My thing that I wrote down was, surround yourself with genuine people. That was the comment that I wrote in my diary off the back of that day. And the reason I wrote that is because an interesting thing happens, or happened to me, and I'm pretty sure happens to a lot of people in my position. An interesting thing happens when you become a, a TV presenter, when you become a presenter of a show. Right now, I have worked on shows in the background uh, at Sky Sports F1 for a number of years. I have worked on a show at Sky, as in presenting a show at Sky. And now, though, I've moved into this big show, the Wheeler Dealers franchise, and I am one of the two main presenters. Now, what happens in that situation is people definitely begin to treat you differently. And I have not grown up in the limelight as such. I was just a mechanic at McLaren. I have operated in the shadows, if you like, in that sense, because in those teams, the driver is the star. The driver is the focal point of the entire organization and the, and the entire team, certainly the focal point of fans and the media. And I am just the backroom staff in that role, just helping out to make sure that he has the best opportunity to go and win. Now what happens is you become a TV presenter, you become that focal point of the production. Everybody is desperate to make you happy. Everyone's desperate to tell you how amazing you are all of the time. And for a very short period of time, you know, that's lovely. Who wouldn't want somebody running around telling them they're amazing all the time? But I can tell you the novelty of that wears off incredibly quickly. And then what tends to happen is you start to question how genuine anybody is. Because you can have a conversation, and, and the reason that I was reminded of this when I was talking to the exec at the network this week was that whenever I have a conversation with anybody high up in television whether it's directors or executives, um, management people from networks and production companies, they always want to tell you how brilliant you are. Now, as I said, that's flattering at first, but I have now very quickly got to the point where I almost shut off in those moments because I'm now waiting to try and find the real comments, the real feelings in a conversation in amongst the ones that are just there to fluff you up, just to butter you up and make you feel great. I'm not interested in somebody just telling me something to make me feel great if it's not got any backbone. 
if it's not got any substance behind it. Now, if you have done a good job, of course, take the compliments. If somebody wants to tell you you've done a good job, brilliant. That's a great boost of confidence. It can reaffirm your own self-confidence, your own self-belief in your ability. Those things can be really positive and powerful, but only if they're genuine. And what I know from spending years now working in the world of television is that there are very few genuine people. There are very few genuine people in those positions of power in these kind of worlds. And even less so, even if they are genuine people, they don't always say genuine things. They almost have a default setting of telling the presenter of a show particularly how brilliant and amazing they are. And the reason that I'm saying these things is because it becomes harder and harder to know how to trust people, when to trust people. It becomes harder and harder to build a circle of people around you inside this world that you can absolutely believe 100% what they say. Because in your mind, there's always this tainted feeling that are they just saying it because that's what TV people do? Now, when I had this conversation with the exec and these kind of things began to happen again, my immediate thought was thrown back to when Lewis Hamilton joined the McLaren team when he joined Formula One back in 2007. He was a kid who came out of nowhere, very young. Not a huge number of people had, I mean, people had heard of him because he'd been coming up through the ranks, but he certainly wasn't an F1 star. He certainly wasn't a big household name at that point. And yet he came into our team as a rookie and exactly that same sort of thing started to happen. And I could see it happening from a mile off. I could see people running around after Lewis, only ever telling him how brilliant he was. All the time, every single day of his life. Doing things for him, getting things for him. Making sure that he didn't have to lift a finger other than to get into the racing car and drive. Now, there are reasons for all this stuff happening. There's, there's a good argument to say that you take away a lot of the noise from a, an elite athlete to allow them to focus all of their energies on the bit that you want them to do, which is, of course, in a Formula One driver's case, driving that car to the best of their ability. But there are consequences to going from a regular person like Lewis was to overnight being an absolute superstar within his own team where people fussed over him night and day and told him that he was amazing. And the thing about Lewis Hamilton was they told him he was amazing whether or not he was amazing or otherwise. If he had a good day or a bad day, people told him he was amazing. If he had a bad day and came into the room down and upset with himself, people were there to pick him up. Don't worry, Lewis, you were great. It was the car that let you down today. You know, you were so unlucky today. Now, the knock-on effect, the consequences of all of that are that, first of all, it, it definitely and hugely changes a person. And I saw that happening with Lewis Hamilton over a period of just six months, his first six months into his career. If you want to know the grimy details of how Lewis Hamilton changed in those first six months, go get my book. <laughs> it's all in there. <laughs> I explain all of that in great depth. But perhaps it's no surprise that he changed as a person in that six months. And I'm not talking about in a good way. I'm talking about somebody who began to distrust everybody around him in the way that I'm talking about a little bit in the TV world. On a much more extreme level, Lewis Hamilton 
I'm sure, did not know who he could trust because he'd walked into now a team of hundreds and hundreds, if not a thousand people, where everybody just wanted to tell him how amazing he was. Overnight. So where does he get his proper, genuine, real feedback from on his behaviours and his performances? And this was the conversation that I was having with myself this week. If I was terrible at my job presenting the TV show, I don't think I am, but if I was terrible, would somebody actually tell me? Or would it eventually just get to a point where at some point they wouldn't recommission the show or I'd get sacked? I wouldn't get a contract extension. Because I suspect that's how it would go. Now, every time I go into a company or an organisation to talk about how we can manage people better, how they can build this trusting culture within the organisation of high-performing teamwork, getting everybody to buy into the same vision or mission that the management team are aiming for? How do you get people to trust each other and to trust the leadership, leadership team? Well, a huge part of that comes from having this culture where you are able to give real and genuine feedback, good or bad. And if the feedback's bad, if somebody's doing a bad job, I don't think we just sack them. We help that person. We give them support. We try and understand why they might be doing a bad job. Is it because the training wasn't good enough? Is it because they don't have the right resources or tools or equipment around them? Is it because the people around them are not enabling those that person to do their job? Is it because the structures or the processes that they're having to work under don't necessarily fit their skill sets and characteristics and therefore the two don't merge and you simply can't get this whole process working perfectly. There can be a huge number of reasons why somebody is operating at a lower level than they probably should be. But the point is, if you don't give them feedback on all of those things, if you don't explain what you need from that person that they might not be currently giving you, and have a conversation about how you could perhaps help that person get that out of them, well, how on earth do you expect the person to improve? And if you're Lewis Hamilton, and if you were operating slightly lower than your potential, but everybody was only ever telling you how brilliant and amazing you were, you've got no reason to start looking at yourself and trying to change things. And those things definitely happened with Lewis Hamilton. And I am consciously well aware that that kind of process could happen with me in this new role that I've now taken on as a TV presenter. There are very few people willing to give you the real feedback that you need in life to be able to give a genuine and fair assessment of your own performance levels and then analyse those performance levels and then find ways if needed to improve them. Now, I know that I have people around me that can give me that. Now, if nobody else, my wife will always give me very honest feedback, sometimes way too honest. <laughs> but she keeps me grounded where everybody in the TV world is very happy to elevate you up onto a pedestal, which actually, although feels nice for a moment, doesn't help you in the long run. And look, that was the the note that I wrote on Wednesday was about surrounding yourself with genuine people. And it's a conscious effort that I am now making, having transitioned into this world where I have become a focal point of a production, I want to have genuine people around me. 
you know, I know that my co-presenter, Mike Brewer, for example, one of the most genuine people that I have ever met, somebody I trust with my life and somebody who I know will give me honest feedback if I need it. And I happily will do the same to him. He's been in this TV game for 30 years. He's had this on a much more extreme level than I have. I see the same things that I'm talking to you about happening to me. I see them happening to him on a daily basis as well. But I also see the need for genuine and real feedback in that situation. And so I'm very happy and prepared to give it to them, to him, if I feel he, he needs it. Now, some people won't take that well. But the reality is we all kind of need it. And so my message or my lesson from this that Lewis Hamilton did not do in the first year of his Formula One career, but then did do later on moving forward, was surround himself. And this is what we should be doing, surrounding ourselves with genuine, real people, people who are brave enough to stand up to us and tell us if we're getting above our station or tell us if we're not doing a, a good enough job in something. Not in a critical way, not in a, right, you've, just, you've been a bit rubbish today, you need to sort yourself out, but in a way that can help us to be better. Constructive criticism. That's what we can all benefit from. And we shouldn't be afraid to receive it either. Because being afraid to receive that criticism is just as a negative, just a negative force as not receiving any in the first place. So open your minds to receiving constructive criticism. If somebody's willing to help you be better, my goodness, that is a massive positive for you. Take it. You don't know when you'll next get some of that. Take it. So that was it. The note just said, surround yourself with genuine people from Wednesday. And I think that links quite nicely into the note from Thursday, because what happened on Thursday, well, what happened on Thursday in the F1 world was was pretty huge, wasn't it? We were all waiting for a statement from the FIA following the mess that was the end of the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix uh, at the end of last year. That's fateful day where the championship was decided in well let's just call it an unorthodox manner now i don't want to get into the rights and wrongs of what decisions are made uh who was right who was wrong whether the championship should be awarded differently or not i'm not going to cover any of that what i am absolutely going to cover is the way the fia have handled it because we've been waiting for some kind of statement for some kind of report to come out of the FIA's investigation into what happened for quite some time now. And bear in mind that the FIA were the ones investigating the FIA. Perhaps it's no surprise that we didn't get a particularly critical report. And ultimately what happened was they released a report which said uh, nothing much about um, what happened in Abu Dhabi, but there were going to be new structures put in place, uh, new processes put in place, and ultimately new people put in place. And what I think I wrote down, in fact, I wrote down here, the my, my note says, FIA mess, angry fans. <laughs> um, I think some of those things speak for themselves. But to link it to what I've just spoken about in terms of the day before and people giving criticism or not giving criticism, people not feeding back when somebody is underperforming in their role until a point where, in my case, for example, as a TV, TV presenter, 
if nobody's willing to give me feedback from the network, from the production company, if everybody's just willing to tell me how brilliant I am until one day when they don't renew my contract and ultimately I get sacked without much in the way of warning, without much in the way of guidance. That's clearly not going to be the best way to keep your team operating at the highest possible level. If we think about what the FIA have done here, Michael Massey made some decisions in Abu Dhabi that were hugely controversial, that were unprecedented in many cases. I've spoken about this in great length on this podcast and on previous other people's podcasts, in fact, and on my own YouTube channel, about my genuine belief is that Michael Massey was trying to do the right thing in Abu Dhabi. He was under immense pressure, pressure that you or I just simply can't even fathom. The number of people that were counting on him to do something in those closing moments of that race that would A, give us a worthy finish to the Grand Prix, but also keep it fair. I think Michael Massey was desperately trying to do the right thing, but as time was ticking away and he was running out of laps and the pressure was mounting from people on at him in the radio, the pressure that he was under anyway, I think he buckled under that pressure and he made a poor decision. I think he got caught halfway between two different decisions that he could have made and he made a new one that was somewhere in the middle of all of that. And it became a mess. And we all know what the outcome was. But I genuinely think that that was simply a mistake on his part. Probably, if he's honest, with hindsight, he would have done it differently. Then, of course, what happened is the FIA, or the stewards rather, conducted their own investigation on that same evening and deemed that nothing had been done wrong, that Michael Massey ultimately had complete control over how and when he utilised the safety car in the race. And they had a get-out-of-jail-free card to essentially confirm the result as Max Verstappen being the winner of the Grand Prix and the championship. Now, as I say, I'm not getting into who should be champion, who was champion or any of those things. But if we focus on the FIA and the Michael Massey situation here, just look at what's happened over the course of that whole timeline. Michael Massey, if we believe, and let's just say for my argument's sake, that he made a genuine mistake whilst trying to do the right thing. Now, how many of us have done that? How many of us have made mistakes in life while trying to do the right thing? On difficult moments, big, big moments. None of us, I'm sure, have had moments as big as that and pressure as big as that. But I think he just made a genuine mistake. The consequences were huge, but the mistake was a relatively simple one. Now, if we take that as what happened, and you're all free to have your own interpretations, maybe you see it very differently. But if we see this as a mistake, serious or otherwise, it was a mistake... Then we look at the FIA. So we get to the point where there's an investigation happened. Now we're looking at the FIA to think, OK, what are they going to do? What are they going to do about the results? What are they going to do about the processes that were in place for Michael Massey to do his job to the best of their ability? What are they going to do about Michael Massey? Are they going to sack him? Are they going to support him? I mean, who knows? We waited and we waited and then we got their report. And ultimately what happened is... Their report suggests that the processes that were in place, the technology that was in place, the system that Michael Massey was operating under could be vastly improved. Let's put it that way. 
Whether it wasn't fit for purpose or not, it could be vastly improved. And so that's what they're doing. They're putting all of these huge changes, changes, by the way, that I think are hugely positive moving forward. A huge number of elements of support that will be there for the race director that weren't there in Abu Dhabi. Virtual assistant referee type scenarios. They are changing some of the regulations to stop team principals badgering the race director on the radio in big moments like that. Again, something that contributed hugely to the pressure that Michael Massey was under. But at the end of that statement, they announced that Michael Massey was going to be replaced as race director. Now, For me, what happened in that moment, in that line of the statement was, the FIA have openly accepted that the system isn't good enough. The system needs to be improved, needs to be changed to make the race director, to enable the race director to make fair and clear decisions under less pressure than Michael Massey had to make his in Abu Dhabi. Yet those things weren't in place in Abu Dhabi, so Michael Massey did have to make his decisions under those huge amounts of pressure. And yet they seem like they've just sacked him. Now, there's always this caveat that I don't know if Michael Massey actually wants to continue in that role. It would be hugely understandable if he doesn't. The abuse that he's received online from, in fact, online and in the wider media, the traditional media, since Abu Dhabi has been disgusting, quite frankly. I mean, awful journalism I've seen in many places, not to mention the social media criticism that he's clearly come under. Now, some of that criticism might be justified, but not the abuse. Not in any way is the abuse justified. And yet the FIA appear, at least on the outside, to have just dropped him. Now, if you want to link that back to what I said earlier about being a television presenter and maybe nobody giving me constructive feedback, nobody supporting me constructively from the inside of our organisations, from our network or our production company, until ultimately... One day people stop telling me how brilliant I am and I just get sacked. Well, isn't that sort of what's just happened at the FIA? Yes, Michael Massey made a mistake, but I can equate that to somebody in a pit stop at a Formula One team. Not getting a wheel on properly in a pit stop. Now, the consequences of that very simple mistake can be huge. The car might not finish the race. The car could have an accident. Somebody could get injured. But if the car doesn't finish the race, you lose points. Maybe it will affect your championship. Imagine if a mechanic at Mercedes or at Red Bull had messed up a pit stop in that final race at Abu Dhabi. And that had been the thing that decided the outcome of the championship. Imagine that. So imagine the pressure that guy would have been under. Imagine how he'd have been feeling post-race if all of that had played out. And then imagine... If Mercedes or Red Bull, whoever it was, just sacked him. Now, that would be the worst possible way to treat your staff, your employees, your colleagues. I have never known that happen. I mean, a lot of people always say to me, if you mess up in a pit stop, do you get sacked? Is it the last pit stop you ever do? No, absolutely not. In a world where human performance is everything in an organisation, and it is, by the way, in that world, the person who makes a mistake and has such huge consequences like that needs to be hugely supported. Not only do they need to be supported for their own well-being, because they probably will suffer off the back of that, 
but actually they need to be supported because that person could and should be central to the rebuilding process of that team. The new processes and structures that get put in place to make sure moments like that can't happen in the future, the person best placed to be at the heart of that process is the person who made that mistake in the first place. And I personally believe that's exactly the same for Michael Massey and the FIA. Now, I am saying this without knowing the full details. Maybe Michael Massey has been really constructive in the process that they are adopting moving forward. I don't know. But it certainly feels like the FIA have sort of dropped him off the back of this, off the back of pressure from media and from fans. And I personally think it's the wrong decision. And if Michael Massey has opted not to continue in that role, if he has no desire to continue that role, well, then it should have been communicated better. It should have been communicated in that way. Because to say he's been replaced massively suggests that he has been dropped from the role. And that suggests a huge lack of support and a lack of foresight from the FAA in trying to make sure the rebuilding process is done in the most complete way possible. So I know that many of you will be shouting at your your iPods, your iPhones. Does anyone use iPods anymore? Your iPhones, um, your podcast players, your car, stereos, wherever you're listening to this. Many of you will be shouting, saying that's absolute nonsense. Michael Massey made a huge mistake, grossly unfair, changed the outcome of a championship. Of course, he should be sacked. Well, we all make mistakes. And it's now very clear that the circumstances that Michael Massey made his mistake under were far from optimum. Those were circumstances put in place by the FIA. He was operating under a system owned and set up by the FIA, by the people who employed him, by the same people who have now sacked him because he made a mistake. I can't see that in any way as a productive way for the FIA to move forward, either in terms of what they're communicating to A, the outside world, and B, all of the other employees at the FIA, and secondly, just in terms of being more productive, in terms of being more transparent and clear-cut and fair and clinical in decision-making moving forward. Surely those people who were part of the failure, should also be part of the road to rebuilding towards success. That's the way Formula One teams look at their employees. It's the way they look at their people. These are some of the most high-performing teams in the world. The very model that I now use to go and talk to organisations everywhere about how to be more high-performing in terms of their own teams. I look at a Formula One team and I use those as an example. Because that's how they operate. If somebody needs support in your organisation, you give them support. You don't get rid of them. Of course, there's going to come a point where multiple mistakes, multiple errors, an attitude that's not willing to learn and improve. Of course, in the end, those people can't be helped and they're not the right people for your team. But I happen to think Michael Massey did a lot of things really well. I think the teams believe that. On many occasions, he came into that job in a very difficult situation off the back of the death of Charlie Whiting, somebody everybody loved and respected. But by the way, Charlie Whiting also made many mistakes during his time as race director. 
my advice, my lesson, if you want to call it a lesson to come out of all of this is that, look, I try and do this already. I talk about it, as I say, with every company that I go to. Try and treat the people around you, your friends, your children, your siblings, family members, as well as people in your little circle. Try and treat them with the respect and the dignity that they deserve if they make a cock up. Don't be the friend that drops them because they messed up somewhere. Be the friend that gives them a second chance. Be the friend that asks them why they might have made that cock up. What was behind it? Why did they flare up and shout at you the other day in an argument? Was it actually because they were just being horrible deliberately or was it because they had something going on in their own personal lives? Were they under some immense pressure that you don't know about? Are they feeling depressed? Have they got their own personal issues going on? All of these things contribute to our performance and our behaviours that most people around us have no idea about on a daily basis. We don't post pictures on our social media of the rubbish times. We don't tend to tell people that stuff's going really badly. If I bring this right back to the very beginning, we only tell people things that we tend to think people think will make us successful. The things that we think people will then see us as being successful. Those are the things that we post on social media with big smiles all over our faces. And we get responses back in the comments that go, wow, you're so lucky. What an amazing life you leave. You lead. Hashtag living your best life. No one's living their best life. It's one of the most nonsense hashtags I've ever seen. I've probably used it myself at some point, just before anyone goes searching for it. <laughs> no one's living their best life because... Your best life is something that's unattainable, isn't it? Your best life is something that seems to be perfect and nobody has the perfect life. All we can do is live the best life that we can in any given moment. And so if somebody's not living a particularly best life, if somebody's not having a good day, if somebody's suffering in silence, we don't get to know about it until maybe it blows up and they either have a, an argument, they flare up in a row, or they make a mistake, they buckle under pressure. And when those things happen, those people need their friends, they need their family, they need their close circle around them to support them, to help them, to help rebuild them out of that spiral that they might have found themselves in. Now, I don't know how Michael Massey must have been feeling post Abu Dhabi, but I can imagine it must have been pretty awful. I hope he didn't read anything on social media or read the press, but it's probably inevitable. I hope he had a great circle of people around him to support him. I hope people from within our sport reached out to support him. I hope the FIA supported him. But the statement that was released the other day by the FIA didn't seem to do much in the way of supporting him in any way. And look, that's how I will leave that particular story. But that was really and I know that that's that's divisive. People will wildly agree or disagree because it's such controversial circumstances. And I talked about how fans are still so angry. And when I tweeted my response to the FIA's uh, report on this, well, I should have known better because for the next 
48 hours, my DMs were packed full of angry fans disagreeing with what I said. Now, that's fine. I don't mind. I can happily take that. And people are well within their rights to disagree. These are all opinions at the end of the day. But my reason for bringing it into this podcast was to try and explain, as in the nature of this podcast, what lies behind those decisions, what effects those, what effects those decisions have on the people involved. And seemingly dropping somebody like that for making a mistake, if that's what we all deem it to be, and I don't think for one second there was anything premeditated or orchestrated uh, in terms of trying to orchestrate an outcome from the FIA or from Michael Massey. I think he made a mistake and the FIA have desperately been trying to now cover that up and make sure that, that mistake doesn't impact or isn't impacted in terms of or have an impact in terms of people questioning that result and having to get into a messy affair of going back to change the outcome of the world championship i don't think for a second that was ever going to happen i don't even think it should happen but i think in trying to do those things they have made a messy situation even more messy and not one that i think has reflected well on them as an organization in any way possible so there are surely lessons that we can all take from that now look i had so much more i really wanted to talk about this week but i'm gonna have to leave it there because we are coming up towards an hour and there is one more thing that i just wanted to drop into the end of this conversation and to the end of this podcast because i've been asking you guys for feedback all the way through this thing and you've duly followed up on that you send me feedback every week which i hugely appreciate and so this week i wanted to pick one out and just bring it to you and have a quick discussion off the back of it okay so a big thank you to everybody who writes to me in any capacity on any of my social platforms or on email any week uh, i appreciate it as i said at the beginning now i wanted to just quickly pick up on this one which is an email that came in you can email me anytime at mark at f1elvis.com uh, this one came in from marco paulius van Pauliet, and i really am sorry i've probably got that horribly wrong but marco sent me a really long email, which I won't read the whole thing to you, but I do appreciate it, Marco. Uh, he was talking about the goal-setting podcast. He says, hey, Mark, uh, I have listened to your goal-setting podcast and just spontaneously decided to reach out. Um, the reason why is because in my world of professional financial trading, the standards are at the same top level and I can very much relate. So thank you very, very much indeed, Marco. I appreciate that. He goes on to talk about his own world and some of the lessons that I've talked about that he's relating back to what he does. But then he comes to a question for me, which I thought I would try and answer here. He says, now my question to you is, what is your ultimate goal? What is your goal within your current media adventures? What gives you the greatest pleasure? Is it views, likes, driving 911s on Silverstone's racetrack, money, fame, or what? Please do share. Um, and the reason I wanted to bring that up is because it obviously links very nicely into what I was just talking earlier on about measuring success. His question, Marco says, what is it that makes me happy, gives me the most pleasure? Is it things like views on a, on a YouTube video? Is it likes on social media? Is it doing the things that I get to do? Is it money or fame? It's none of those things. You've probably already got the answer, Marco, from listening to the first part of this podcast. It's none of those things. Yes, they give me 
pleasure. Yes, they do make me happy in that moment. I enjoy doing all of those things, of course, like most people do. But what gives me real happiness, and there is a distinct difference between pleasure and happiness. Pleasure being something that happens in the moment, happiness being something that's far more intrinsic and deep-rooted. And what gives me that happiness is this idea of a sense of purpose, that I feel like I'm doing something good for the wider world, that I've had some amazing experiences in my life in a subject matter, in a sport that many of you are so passionate about, just as passionate as I am. And I have had a privileged position to experience it from the inside, to work inside a Formula One team with Formula One drivers on Formula One cars, to experience the highs and lows that come with that, the ups and downs, the teamwork, all of the different elements that make up this Formula One circus. My mission now, the thing that gives me ultimate happiness from a career perspective, is to be able to share those things with you guys. If we can do things in our work capacity that make us happy that give us pleasure and of course driving jet skis on lakes or driving Porsche 911s around Silverstone of course they give me pleasure I love it I mean that's an incredibly lucky thing to be able to say you do for a living but that's not ultimately what gives me the happiness the happiness is the life that I have created for myself including all of those things but a life where I feel content I feel safe I feel happy. I have a family around me that hopefully feels safe, content and happy. I have enough, but I don't have too much. I have spare capacity in my life to be able to do things for other people. Those are the things that fulfill my sense of purpose and make me feel happy. So, yes, there you go. What gives you the greatest pleasure? It's all of those things. It's doing something I love to do every single day putting smiles on my face. That's exactly what life surely has to be about. It's about enjoyment. And I have been very lucky to go through two, almost two separate careers. One inside the Formula One team, which was a dream come true, and I loved every second of it. Even the really difficult bits, even the really low moments. I look back on them all as being a huge learning experience. Something that 100% has contributed to my life today. And like any of us, none of us would be the people that we are today without those things that had gone before. And then today, I'm in my second career, if you want to call it that, in terms of the media side of things. So my goals in terms of what happens next, I don't know. The only goal I've ever had from a career perspective in life was to get into Formula One. I had that for quite a few years as a kid and I did it. After that, I had no idea what was coming next. I even left the Formula One team after 10 years, knowing that I had to leave for personal reasons, for family reasons, because I'd achieved everything I wanted to achieve in that sport, and yet I didn't want to be away from home as much with young children around. So I left the team, but I didn't have a major plan, and I stumbled into the media side of things. And I'm hugely grateful. Of course, I stumbled having created myself those opportunities because of the kind of person I am. Through my writing about my experiences, the media opportunities came off the back of that. And who knows what will be happening next for me. I presume and I imagine and I will probably make sure that there are a set of experiences that come next that I will somehow subliminally create for myself. Some of them will be conscious, some will be subconscious. But the next chapter, post 
doing these TV shows that I do, post doing these podcasts and my YouTube channel. I have no idea what it will be. But I'm excited by the prospect of doing something further down the line because that's the kind of person that I am. I'm a happy person. I know that I've created happiness by putting the things in place in my life that enable me to feel that way. So I have no concerns about what will come next. And that, I guess, is a goal that's probably worthy of all of us, isn't it? Creating a situation in life where even if you are not rich in terms of finance, even if you don't live in a huge, expansive mansion, even if you don't have a job title that says you are a manager or a supervisor or a director or a leader, if you can still find a way to be happy, if you can still tick the boxes in your life that make you feel comfortable, safe, secure, content and ultimately happy, well then you can join me as being one of the most successful people in the world. Thank you very much everybody. Have a wonderful, wonderful week. Please do share the podcast around. I'd really appreciate it. Let me know your thoughts. Hit me up on any one of my social platforms. You can get me on all of them at F1 Elvis. Drop me an email, whatever you want to do. I'd love to hear from you. Have a great week and I'll see you again next time for more Pit Lane Life Lessons.